So here we are in a system not designed for women, not designed for millennials, not designed for inclusion. A system that is finally changing. Let's get familiar. Let's talk about business. Let's talk about lifestyle. Let's talk about womanhood. I'm Leslie Gray, bringing you passionate, informed guests to talk about millennial women building wealth, power, and influence in our modern era. The future for women and wealth is brighter than ever. Welcome to Love and Dividend. Welcome to part two of our Career Real Talk series. If you missed part one, I recommend going back and listening to that episode of the podcast. One of the things we talk about in that episode is the idea of your job possibly being your calling, your vocation, or just possibly being the means by which you make money. Some of us are able to put all of that together, some not. And for all of us, our interests, hobbies, vocations, and careers are going to change many times over time. So sometimes they may line up as your true passion and what you want to do, and and sometimes maybe not. I love the idea of a calling. I said in the episode I really felt called to practice law. I was called to the bar. It felt like a beautiful calling. After we recorded it, I was reading an article about how, yes, we are called to various professions. We're called to do many things in life. But because that's true, we're also called away from a lot of things. A lot of things that may have felt right and may have called out to us then may become something we're called away from. For me, one of the big things I was called away from was engineering. I didn't really think about it that way at the time. It's really just after reading that article and thinking about how much time and effort I put into becoming an engineer. It, it was a calling, and the choice to leave it for a different profession certainly felt right, but I'm not sure I truly grieved it at the time. Because that is what happened. I was called away. But I didn't go too far. I still think of myself as an engineer. And I think some part of me has been trying to get back to that. I was an electrical engineer. And I will still love all things electric. My car is electric. And most recently, I have become obsessed with electric bikes. I'm a big bike enthusiast. I was a road biker for a while. I love me a spin class. And so with gyms closed, with spin studios closed, I'm back into biking. And I've been really enjoying Toronto Bike Share. Uh, Most cities have these now, bikes that you sort of can rent out for half an hour or so. And I've been a longtime user of Toronto Bike Share. But most recently, I was on a monster bike ride. I talked on our fitness episode about how I like to do monster walks, i.e. very long walks. And that has since been replaced with monster bike rides. And I was down at 
Cherry Street Beach for anyone in Toronto. So I come down on my bike. You have to swap out the bikes, at least for Toronto Bike Share. You have to swap them out every half hour. So like you can get a day pass where you're taking the bike all day, but then every half hour you have to go to a station, like lock in the bike, get a new bike. I don't really mind it. Kind of lets you have like a water break. So I go put in the bike, go for a little stroll along Cherry Street Beach, come back and realize the counter where I would usually get the code is out of service. I'm like, that's very annoying. What am I gonna do? And out of nowhere, gentleman comes up behind me and says, ma'am, are you looking for a bike? Almost as if bike share is some sort of service with a provider. This was very mysterious to me. Usually there's no one working there. It's not, it's not like they have staff. There's like maybe people who come and move around the bikes, but it was very off-putting for him to be like, ma'am, may I help you with the bike? I kind of felt like he was going to be like, may I ask you a few questions for a survey? That was not the case. He's literally just there, I think we're turning bikes, hanging out, I don't know. And I was like, yeah, I really want a bike, but this machine is down, I don't know how to get a code. Found out afterwards you can just like use the app, but I didn't know how to do that at the time. Yes, I just said I was an engineer. Sometimes I understand complex codes, things like basic apps still baffle me. Anyway, this young man was like, Ma'am, may I interest you in an electric bike? I was like, yes, I want that very much. What is it? Here's what it is. It's a bike where as you start pedaling, it gives you like a little boost. The best way I can describe it is if you've ever taken surf lessons and you've done it with like a surf instructor who will give you a little push from behind while, while you're doing the strokes, they just give you a little push So you almost feel like, whoa, did I just become super strong as I'm swimming? No, no. Someone is giving you a boost, but you almost don't notice, except you do notice because if you've tried doing it on your own, you know you're not that strong. So I'm like, sure, sir. I would love an electric bike. And he's like, okay, well, if you don't have a code, I'll just give you this. Which I was like, that means I don't have to return it after half an hour. Sounds like Leslie's having an adventure. And she did. I got on that bike and it was so magical. You just pedal like it's a normal bike and then you're soaring. So she's electric. If you have checked out our podcast art, there's lots of lightning bolts. There's lots of little winks to my electrical roots and I can't recommend enough the electric bikes. When I returned to the stand, the man was still there. And I was like, this was amazing. And he was like, um, you had that bike for like four hours. And I was like, well, it's out of battery now, but I had the best time. Can we charge it and take it again? And he's like, sure, (laughs) here you go. Apparently there's only 25 electric bikes in the whole fleet of bike share. So it's fun to go try to find them. That's what I've been doing on my monster bike rides. And it's just been reminding me of my fun engineering days. So even after I left engineering, even after I was called away, I've still been following, you know, various engineer things. And what's interesting at law school was I feel like being the quote engineer was kind of part of my identity. So anytime something kind of sciencey came up or engineering came up, all my friends or classmates were like, Leslie, as the engineer, 
Because I have to hand it to lawyers. They're very good at being like, let's get some evidence. Let's get some expert testimony. And it'd be like, I'm here. I will be the engineer. I discovered a very fun Instagram account called Iron Ring Girls. And Mina, the creator of it, is our guest on today's episode. She created the account to provide a space and a community for women in engineering or STEM. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to talk about everything. It started with lots of sort of funny memes. She was anonymous and then she sort of said, here I am. And it, I mean, it's still very funny, but it's also transitioned into lots of very practical tips at first for sort of students and new grads. And and now I would say it has a lot of great tips for sort of anyone in their professional journey. I love it. I loved this conversation with Mina. We get really into also how to negotiate your salary, which is always something sticky, but it's just so important if we're going to do all of the things this podcast aims to do, if women are going to be paid their worth, if we are going to close the wage gap, if we are going to just start advocating for ourselves to be part of the financial institutions, financial systems that have previously been exclusive, if we're going to sort of make it to the top, so to speak. Iron Ring uh, refers to the ring that engineers in Canada are given at a secret ceremony when they finish engineering. It's a pinky ring on your working hand. It's meant to remind you whenever you're signing off on something, that you are sort of the expert, that it is up to you. And it's just a fun kind of thing that all engineers have in common. So if you watch the episode on YouTube, you'll see Mina and I both sort of flashing our iron rings at each other. And again, if you've looked at any of our podcast art and almost all of it, you'll see an iron ring on the right hand, just a little, little silver ring there. So I hope you enjoy this episode and please share with us if you have any good tips for negotiating and for dealing with workplace dynamics as a young woman who wants to have a very long, successful career in STEM or otherwise. Enjoy. Hi, Mina. Thank you so much for joining us on the Love and Dividends podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I'm excited to be here with the Iron Ring girl. I'm wearing my Iron Ring. I've been a fan of your Instagram account for a long time as a former engineer. I'm also wearing my, it's hard to tell, but my lightning bolt earrings because I'm electric. (laughs) electrical so oh, that's so cool <laughs> we represent, yeah on the podcast cover they're all me it's kind of obnoxious but the one in pink I had her like add these earrings for just a little wink to my, my electrical roots I've been a fan for a while I've probably shared your page with like every woman engineer I know being a woman engineer I think is getting broader and broader but it's still quite a niche so what inspired you to create the account? What what brought you to bring this community together? I studied civil at U of T, University of Toronto. For non-engineers, and the civil ones are like the cool ones. Like the cool ones. <laughs> the fun ones. Cool ones, yeah. <laughs> 
after I graduated university, I was pretty lost in general about what I wanted to do with my degree and like in life in general, because all of high school, we were focusing on like getting into university, getting into university, focusing on our grades. And then same thing with university, like we were like focusing on getting our first job, getting our first job. Oh my God, like, am I going to find a job? Am I going to find a job I like? So then after I graduated and started my first job, I was like, oh, so now what, (laughs) you know? I was like, oh, so I reached, you know what I mean? Engineering is one of the few professional degrees that's an undergrad. And I I agree. I think it's like the the high school prerequisites are very intense. So if you're doing engineering, you're you're very academically focused. And engineering as an undergrad is very academically intense. And we'll get into this. You provide a lot of great help and guidelines for students. But I totally agree. It does feel like something where you get out. I had a similar experience and you're like, now what? Mm -hmm, Exactly. And that's exactly how I felt. I did have a job and I was learning on the job. It was like my first actual full-time, you know, professional uh, work experience. So I was like, you know what, let me just start posting these funny stuff on Instagram. And I created the Iron Ring Girls page. At the time, it blew up so quickly because I feel like I was posting such content that people were relating to. It was just from my own experience. Like I was literally making up, making all the content myself. And then I realized I was like, oh, so I'm not the only one who's feeling this way. There's like, oh, and right now you see a lot of women in STEM on social media. Six years ago, it was not like this at all. Oh, I know. Oh, girlfriend, I know. Yeah. Finally, I mean, this podcast even is reminiscent of that where I'm like, Finally, systems are changed. I mean, this is focused on women, not necessarily in finance, but taking control of their finances. It's new. I mean, that's the whole idea is women in STEM. And I think for me, because I did another degree next, I was like, oh, there's other professions. Women have been doing this for a while. But my engineer girlfriends, like it is, you, we do, we are like Jane Goodall, like living among yeah. the apes. We're like, yeah. it's, they're yeah, like, you who are you, people- strain? Like you see the the nursing community and the doctor's community, they're so like, even on Instagram, they had such a large community where they would create content and they were funny and they create so much, created so much value for each other. But in engineering and STEM, you just didn't see that as much. So, you know, that's how Iron Ring Girls kind of kicked off. And you were anonymous yeah. at first, right? Like at first you were posting yeah. like very, because I remember the day when you're like, I'm Mina. <laughs> I was like, oh, but I remember looking at you like, who is this Iron Ring Girl? She could be me because I'm obsessed with her. She's very funny and, and very topical. But like, and what was the decision to go anonymous and what made the decision to like, yeah. First of all, the reason I didn't, um, you know, show my face and didn't tell people who I am at first was because it's very scary to, you know, be so um, out there and vulnerable on social media. You get these comments and, you know, I don't consider myself an influencer at all. Like I got so many messages in my uh, DMs asking me questions, not like technical questions at all, but more like human questions, you know, like, oh, did you fail an exam? What did you do after you failed? Or like, how did you manage your time? Like, you know, like actual human the answer, by the way, question. if you're in engineering is yes. And mm-hmm. if you're an academic student, this is shocking to you. In other programs, it's really hard to fail. It's also really hard to do really well. Like everyone's kind of between like a 60 and a like yes. a 90. And if you're getting a 90, it's like you're 
publishable, you're a genius. But I would say engineering is this weird one where like, you're like, yeah, I full studied, worked hard and failed that. Or I had a few where you're like, I actually got 90s because it's math and I have to get them all right. It's just such a different program. No, I know what you mean. And it's only that four years of your life when you're focused on those grades and things like that. And like you said before, it isn't one of the few professions where you can get an undergrad degree and be very successful in your career and make very good money. You don't necessarily need a master's. You don't need a PhD necessarily um, in engineering. So that understanding, I think that shift from university to that professional world and you're released from all these assignments and tests and now you have to go figure out what you want to do in this world. Like that is that transition I feel like is just one of the hardest, it's a hard time for everybody. But then again, especially when you're a woman, because depending on, sometimes you're lucky and you work at a very great environment and they're so supportive and you learn, sometimes you don't. Maybe sometimes your first experience is really awful, you know? And, and like having really that- traumatic. I mean, engineering, again, <laughs> as compared to law or med, and they still have their flaws too, but like, it's the most that I still hear stories where I'm like, that's, women my age of like trying to explain like how their breast pump that they have to use works for their child and like Mm -hmm. because women have been doing it they're like well I don't know like their male colleagues are like I don't maybe just don't work and they're like no no I I have to work and you have to give me time and an office space and they're like can it okay can you just go like is it two minutes like it's about half an hour like it's just like awkward things like that that you're just it's just so clear women haven't really been dominant in the space before the older you get and I think each age has its own struggles so mm. when you're starting it's that struggle of oh I don't know anything kind of, and which right. you don't and, and I honest, used to like, know a lot I used to feel really smart right exactly yeah. and especially your, if you're a top a student which most engineering students were top a students totally. um, so when you're younger it's that oh I don't know anything. Well, how will I learn? And then when you get older, it's the financial aspect of it that comes in. It's like, okay, so, you know, I did my due diligence. I, you know, did the grunt work for the first three, four years, which we all did at our first jobs, right? Like they make you do the grunt work, but then you reach that stage where you need to step up, right? You need to start like negotiating hard and, you know, getting paid for what you're actually working for. And that requires a whole other level of professional networking, I would say that. Yeah. Can we talk about that phase? (laughs) You've posted about it before. That's, I mean, that's like one of my favorite things to talk about. And I also want to give you an opportunity to, to talk about some of the questions you were getting, because I sort of interrupted you um, in the DMS of people being inspired. So I want to ask you one about that. And then two, I want us to like get juicy about, yeah, that sort of second career phase. So you're, you're past the grunt work. You're still junior. At the time, I was a recent graduate, so a lot of students would ask me questions, a lot of university students. So their questions were more focused about being an engineering student. A lot of it was about feeling burnt out. Like, I feel like a lot of engineering students were feeling burnt out because, you know, as you know, they were just focusing a lot on school. They lost a sense of self, I would say. They didn't feel like they belonged in their university. And because they're used to the high school environment where, you know, the, the, your teacher knows your name, you know, in the university with the class of like 
thousand people sometimes, the professor is not going to know who you are. So that kind of responsibility and that shift from high school to university, I feel like was challenging. And then there was these other questions that were focused more around the shift between university to your first job. So how did you find your first job? That is a question that I get asked the most. How do you find a job? Like people are struggling. And especially now during the pandemic, like people are graduating. They can't go to career fairs. They can't go to networking events. And those are such Shoot, That is how I found my first job was Queen's Career Fair. That's the, the top question that I get asked. How do you find your first job? The way I answer these questions is I can only speak from my own experience. And that's why the Iron Ring Girls page is a community where I let other people, I feature other people to talk about their own experiences as well. I'm in Toronto. I studied civil, but what if somebody is, you know, somewhere else in Canada and they studied something else? Like there's just so many different ways to answer these questions. So that's why I feel like the more people share their own experience, the more we can help other people because there's not one way to find a job. There's not one way to make it through engineering. It's so many different ways. Was that what inspired you then to say, okay, I'm going to, you know, reveal my identity and and have a bigger presence? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. It's that connection that you're making with the community, right? Like just like how I wanted to feature them and know more about them. I wanted them to know more about me as well. I didn't just want it to be a page. I wanted it to be a person. I would sometimes get, sit at a coffee shop or something and people would actually come up to me and be like, oh my God, are you Mina from Iron Ring Girls? Like, I would have done that. Yeah. so many other, you know, women in the field around us that we just don't know unless like you just see the pinky. But yeah, it's really cool. Um, I love the community. Yeah, I almost had like a weird thing. And I don't know if there's any engineers in your family. I, I actually do come from a big engineering family. My dad was an engineer, like all, all the way generations back. Actually, a lot of U of T engineers. I myself went to Queens, so I know we're kind of enemies, but we'll make peace for now. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, I had that influence, but not necessarily a ton of female engineers. So I do feel like I, like anytime I'd see a woman with an iron ring or things like that, I'd be like, are you an engineer? There was always part of me that was looking for like kind of a girly girl engineer. You know, my obsession with math and physics and coding and STEM. And I've realized this over the years. I used to think the message was that you can be girly and be an engineer, but very soon, like very quickly, I realized that's not the message. The message is you can be yourself and be an engineer because then I realize. Wait, we need to say it one more time. You can be yourself and an engineer. Exactly. And I understand there's a lot of people that are promoting the whole, um, you know, being girly and being an, and that's, that's who they are. And that's great. I also like to point out that it's not necessarily, that's not the message. The message is you can be yourself. And if you being who you you are is being a girly girl, being a tomboy, whatever, like that. And the older you get, the more you realize how that stuff just doesn't matter. Like, you know, when you're at work and you're enjoying what you're doing, you're learning and you're good at what you're doing. Who cares what, you know, what you look like or what you dress like? And when you get older, you realize that. And hopefully you work at a culture where, they realize that as well, like in a company culture where they support that as well. Totally. I think the only caveat I found was that, and I, I mean, I have to say too, with electrical, I was one of the only women in my program and was like in a hot pink ring 
coat and Ugg boots and a jean skirt, which shows you when I went to undergrad. <laughs> so that was the trend at the time, um, the 2000s. But um, I would say what would grind my gears, so to speak, was the presumption that it was sort of like the legally blonde. It's not about like you have to be this Elwood's legally blonde, but it is the presumption of like, and I, I mean, I have very dark hair as you, <laughs> but it is like, it's sort of a presumption of like, she's dumb. And if she's bubbly and if she's this and she's mm -hmm. dumb and I enjoyed a little bit, the contradiction of being like, I am here. I'm so like this. It's very me. Mm -hmm. um, it's not to project that onto anyone, but it's just to say, here's a new model of seeing this. You might not be familiar with, but to be clear, I can build a circuit as well as the rest. I can mm -hmm. solder me some wires. I can, you know, I would walk into the first day of class almost like clockwork second and third year I'd walk in and like the professor would always be like oh no uh sorry this is actually electromagnetics 301 like oh and my like male class and, and because you're the only girl like everyone knows who you are yeah. they're like no don't kick her out it's like the only, one of the only girls we've got uh, like she's here people have very useful advice to give and you'd be surprised like if you're a second year student experience is so valuable to a first year student like you don't have to be the ceo of a company right. to inspire someone or help someone and frankly i can't help that person as much because i kind of forget and when you have mm -hmm. the hindsight of like i now have a full career i have whatever i'm like oh first year wasn't so bad but uh, you know even as i say that i'm like there were moments of like panic there were moments of like what am i doing here there were moments of like I'm going to fail for the first time in my life. Um, mm -hmm. Let's talk about negotiating salary. Let's talk about the next thing that gets <laughs> stressful. Negotiating if it's your first job is very different than negotiating if you've had three, four, five years of experience, right? hundred percent. Negotiating tactics, completely different conversation. Uh, I completely understand that people that just start a job or, um, you know, don't want to accept their first offer, even though they don't have any, you know, background experience because they just graduated. So my answer to that is negotiation should not be your first thing when it's your uh, first job. And there's two reasons for that. First of all, it's you are a recent graduate and everybody, every employer knows that you're a recent graduate. They know exactly how much experience, like how much you know and what you, how much you don't know compared to other people working in the company, right? That have been working there for several years. So I think I tell them the first thing you should focus on to really try, because it's a competitive market at that point, right? You're all recent graduates. One thing you should focus on is your drive, your motivation, your determination. My first interview, I was like, honestly, my grades were not that good in first year, but I ended up graduating with honors in my fourth year. And they Ooh. love that, right? They love that, that, like, go get her attitude. And that's actually what made them hire me. They were like, wow, you were such a like positive go-getter. So that's the one thing that I think people that are um, interviewing for their first job should focus on. The second thing is knowing the range of your salary. Like I knew that for a recent grad at the time for civil, the salaries were somewhere between like 50 to $60,000 a year. I knew that range. So if somebody offered me 30,000, I knew that was like not good or I should say something. So you should always know the range at least, but you can't like if they're giving you a $50,000 salary and then you ask them for like a $85,000, like that doesn't make sense. You need to have some backup. So as long as it's within that range, 
I don't know if negotiating for $1,000 or $2,000 is really worth it at that point because that's your time to shine. Like, And that's exactly what I did. You work for a year. You show them what a, your drive and your motivation. And then your second negotiation, that's when you hit them with. Um, that one is, yeah. And yeah. that one I actually think especially women. I know you're also a fan of Chris Voss's book. I'm obsessed with him too. That was That came up at a, like at a young women in law and um, it was a game changer for me as well. But I actually think for a lot of women, probably some men too, just giving permission to negotiate is incredibly important. So the first job I'm with you, I yeah, and I knew the range, you're absolutely right. But a lot of it wasn't that I'd like negotiate, I think for, and again, I'm thinking both engineering and law, because both times I was a new grad, even though by law, like I was in my late 20s, and had the engineering, I worked as an engineer for a while. So I did have experience, but even then it wasn't really appropriate. Rather, I'm with you. I knew the ranges and I applied to places like I, I applied to a law firm that paid really well. I mean, and even engineering, like I applied for, I you know had a, a research and development job at, at Kinetrix, which used to be part of Ontario Hydro, whatever, like paid well. And that was kind of part of why I applied. So I actually think it's not so much negotiation as being like, hey, you know who pays new hires like pretty well? These places. And then I'm with you. Like now I'm going to hustle. I'm going to make an immaculate mm -hmm. application. I'm going to have anyone I've, especially if you're an engineer, spelling might not be your strong suit. That's a stereotype. <laughs> and it's real. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have everyone I've ever met read my resume and cover letter. And mm -hmm. I'm going to practice interviewing. Like, I think that's the vibe there. But first transition I made and even interviews I've now you know had a couple different jobs in law that is where one I think if someone had been like you need to negotiate this I might not have even thought to because I hadn't before like I might have mm -hmm. been like well hopefully they pay more than I'm getting paid now and I probably would have had a boundary where I'd be like I'm not going to leave this job to make less and even at my job like I didn't really know till later to like start aggressively negotiating. But yeah, talk more about that, how you got comfortable with that, like maybe give our audience permission to start negotiating. Starting with that appropriate range that I talked about is a big plus. Like I asked my classmates, uh, like I asked them, I was pretty open, even the guys, like I wanted to make sure that the guys and the, like I wasn't getting offered a less amount because I was a girl. So I that's an the range. diligence yeah. check, by the way, I need to re-repeat yes. that. <laughs> Don't, and I actually think men sometimes are more candid. Like mm -hmm. women can be a bit more awkward. Like I feel like always ask your male classmates. Exactly. Yeah. So my and first, and I'm going to tell you exactly classmates and coworkers, my starting salary was 57,000 when I started. And one of the guys that I asked in my class, his was like 55,000. So I was like, okay, no, this makes sense. Like this makes total sense. 57 is a healthy salary. So when I went in, I didn't start saying, no, I want 59. Like that didn't make sense to me at the point. And then for the second negotiation, and this could be you still being in the same company, or it could be when you transition to a different company, either way, it needs to happen. Like if you go into your one year review and you don't bring up a salary negotiation, I think that's a no, Like you have to bring it up. Sometimes in bigger companies, there's protocols for it, you know, like they say, okay, we're going to give you the, I don't know, 1%, 2% inflation increase. And then you want to talk about your bonuses or whatnot, like they have more of a structured way of dealing with um, salary increases. 
Whereas in smaller companies, like right now I work at a boutique construction development company. There's only like five people that work here. It's a little bit less structured. So you kind of have to be a little bit more pushy, right? Like if, if maybe if you don't talk about it, they'll never talk about it either. So you might as well talk about it. So I make sure I agree. that I always bring it up. And there's usually three things I like to do before I go into a negotiation. And I think a lot of it was from Chris Voss that I learned. Like it's such a great book. I recommend it. It's called Never Split the Difference for people that don't know. So the first thing I do is, again, the range. Like I always want to know what is out there, what's in the market. And I ask my friends. Like, uh, I think that's really helpful too, by the way, because a lot of the advice I see is like, know your worth, know your worth. And I often find that a little bit sticky just because I'm like, one, you are golden. There's no price that I can put on you. And two, being like, it's actually more know your worth in the market. Yeah. Like, And I think where this idea where I came about it was, actually looking at Hollywood where it's like, well, all these actors and actresses are paid an obscene amount and a lot, and obviously it came out a lot of actresses were paid way less than their male co-stars. And I think why I think it's important is because like all of them were like, well, that's a bit like a bit sticky. Like I'm saying I'm worth 4 million a year and I'm mm -hmm. complaining about that. Like no one gets paid 4 million, but you're like, here's the thing, Elaine from Seinfeld, like both Jerry and Kramer own equity in this show and get money on replays and mm -hmm. NBC's making a shit ton you are one of the core cast members. You need to be making yeah. that money. It's both know your worth, but it's like know your worth in the market. Mm -hmm. So that when you're also making big bank, you're not like, whoa, how could I ask for more than mm -hmm. when you're at that six figure, when you're at like dream salary. It's yeah, the, the range is really important, but that's not where you stop. You, that's your first step. Knowing the range is just the first step of understanding what's going on. And if you don't want to ask coworkers within the company, at least ask your friends, you know, outside of in different companies, if you're, if they're open to discussing it with you, which I think everybody should. I mean, I know it's such a taboo thing to talk about your salary, but it just really helps. Not people, on this right? podcast, Mina. Yeah, no. We are women talking about money and people get sticky. I know when I brought it up, they're like, oh, do you want to talk about yours then? Like, do you want your bonus? So you want yours? And I'm like, no, but we need to find a way, like, obviously not. I'm just as uncomfortable as everyone else, but like, we need to find a way to get this information out here. Another interesting thing to do is to talk to recruiters in your industry. If there are, if it is something where there are headhunters and recruiters, I think a lot of people don't talk to them or if they get emails from recruiters, especially junior people are like, but I love it here. I would never be disloyal. There's like a weird, I don't want to betray the company. And I'm loyal. And I felt that way too at first. My biggest advice is like always take the meeting. Always take the meeting if there's a recruiter or whatever. And those can be really good sources. Mm -hmm. Like my view of always take the meeting is just to be like, so what does this other job that's similar to mine pay? What am I worth? And I always find it's great information. Either if it's more, you're like, oh, it's time to negotiate. Or if it's much less, I mean, you just feel good. You're like, great. Mm -hmm. I'm actually making really good money, which makes me like my current job even more. Mm -hmm. So I would just add the third one, a nice way if you don't want to have to like ask your friends and family, which can be tricky. If you don't have colleagues that you mm -hmm. want to have that conversation or who you trust, that can be tough too. Mm -hmm. The range is really enough. Um, so I think that's the first step to know um, for negotiating. The second step is sitting down with your life expenses and your expectations and genuinely thinking about how much money would make you happy because I think that's a very important part of the process. 
yeah, like this is what I do. Like I keep track of all my expenses. I don't know. Somebody do you keep track in Excel, you... by the way? Are you a true oh, engineer with an Excel? Do you have some boss <laughs> Excel spreadsheets? Obviously. I'm an Excel spreadsheet for everything. <laughs> do you? Like even at law, sometimes I'm like, we should pop this into Excel. People are like, I actually don't know how to use it for. And I'm like, I will change your life. Excel. Give me five minutes. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. So, and you're like, kind of, is it like some color coding in there too? And not a real Excel spreadsheet without color coding. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm actually just like kind of offending her now. <laughs> so yeah, you sit down and yeah, somebody might be happy with 60K. Somebody might not be. So I think it's really important to establish with yourself what would make you happy and what your expectations are. So and like, how do you go about doing that? Are you like, sorry, that has nothing to do with your, uh, yeah. But are you like, I want to do a trip every year. That's this, or like, I want to exactly what it is. I yeah. want to be able to move to a two bedroom yeah. condo at some point. First you do your bare minimum. Like what is the minimum you need for right. paying your rent or your car insurance, whatever, exp like your minimum expenses. Yep. And then you have some other luxury items that are important to you to some, it might be travel to some, it might be luxury items to some, it might be eating out. I don't know, whatever it is, establish the lifestyle that you're comfortable with and makes you happy and write that number down for you, write that range down. So now you have the market range. You have that range that makes you happy. And now you're going to go into that range of at where you work. So you're like, okay, based on the market and based on what makes me happy, this is what I'm getting paid. This is the amount of work I've done. This is the backup that I have for negotiating. I've done this project. I've done, I've added value like that to this company. Like you always have to talk about how you added value to the company. This and is how do, I added are you value. tracking that the whole way through? Yeah, I mean, you should always like... Or are you doing it as this like one year like kind of reflection um, or how do you sort of do that? So we have like six month reviews, but we nice. have, but we negotiate salary annually. So every six Got months it. we do, like I think six months is a decent, like you wouldn't do it every week or every month, I think. But in general, like every, maybe like every July and then every January kind of yep. thing, like set up two yep. months for yourself. Those are nice times. Too, this is a tip from one of my mentors that mm -hmm. I think everyone should do. But I have always at every job kept like a folder on my desktop called feedback. And every time I get like a positive email, a positive statement, I just drag and drop it in there. One, it's just like a nice thing to have because you'll have hard days, much like the failing test, you'll have hard days too. You'll, you'll screw, if you work long enough, you'll screw something up. But it's so it's sometimes just nice for your own ego. But two, I find it actually creates a nice map. If it's client work, it's like this client sent this really glowing email. And then my upgrade to that, if you're given the opportunity to submit something formal, often if there's any sort of like review process, companies have this, to your point, smaller ones might not. But like law firms do always have this like sort of self-review. People usually hate it, by the way. People are like, I don't want to fill out this valuation. I have enough work. The folder really helps. And what I used to do, subject to confidential information, is I put it on a PDF. And when it's like anything additional to add, I'd be like, to assist in reviewing me, please see select feedback. And I just found that is just like a nice time. So that would be my hot tip for anyone working is to mm -hmm. do it that way. And then 
it's kind of at your fingertips. So then the third one is you building up your case to go into that negotiation and into that room, whether it's having people backing you up, like showing them how happy your managers are with you, whether it's how you added value. And this is where you cannot be shy. This is where you're going to talk yourself up. This is where you, you're assertive. This is this is where it all comes together, right? And you just list it. You just go on and on. This is how I added value. And then we did this and then we did that. And you're kind of building your case at this point. Whatever they come back at you with, first of all, you know, step one, you know what the market's all about. You know how much the guys are getting paid. You know how much the girls are getting paid. So you have an answer for that. Second of all, you're building your case. You've showed them how much value you've added. And third of all, if they tell you the bottom line is this, take it or leave it, you realize what take it or leave it is for you in step two, right? Like, you know what's going to make you happy. So if they're being super stubborn and they're not accepting what you're saying, and if they, it's not the end of the world, you can leave it. Like, you can leave a job because it doesn't satisfy your lifestyle. That is totally okay. Obviously, if you, because of the vibe, you'll know going into the negotiation, like if they're going to accept it or not. And you're going to have to, you know, have some backup plans beforehand in case you're going to say no to this. Like, I'm not saying make like a spontaneous decision like that. You just have all of this information going into that room and whatever they respond to you, you know what your answer is going to be. Because if you tell them you want 90 and they tell you 60, you're, and if you accept that 60, like, what does that mean, right? That you're looking for that 90. And I'm just throwing random numbers out there and I'm being, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but I think it's just like if you follow these three steps, first of all, you know where you stand and you know where you stand in the company and you know where you stand in the market. And that's like a very good field of negotiation. I love that idea of coming and being very clear. The only two, I think, caveats I would add, I think especially for women, this this is the step that can put them off. And I have kind of two comments because I've given a lot of junior women this like you need to negotiate and they're like I just couldn't and so I think two things I always asked was like one did you even frame it as a question because I think even before coming in being like I need 90 it's helpful to be like you know how does compensation work here how does Mm -hmm. it work next year like even Mm -hmm. as I think especially if you're at your one year to your point like you can actually do it in a way that might feel more naturally is to ask the questions and Chris Voss like one from his book that I'm just remembering, but he talks about how if you ask a why question, and he says it's true in a lot of different cultures, people become defensive. So you're mm-hmm. like, why aren't you making more? People are like, well, this year and we didn't meet our quarter and you know, you're not mm-hmm. really that senior. Like you get them into this weird defensive, <laughs> whereas if you're like, how can I get to this next range? It puts them in a problem solving mindset where they're like, huh? And they're able to be like, well, this year, no. But you know, mm-hmm. if you kept up this project or for this client or this kind of initiative you took, like it lets you be more of a team. Mm-hmm. The other thing I got from another great book is Confidence Code, written by a female newscaster uh, on the BBC. One thing she queued up, this helped me a lot, was she's like, it tells your employer you're ready. It mm-hmm. tells them you believe your work, you've done the step three, I believe, which is like, here's here's the projects, here's my evidence. It shows them that you believe you're ready for that. And all of that, and I agree, if you need to leave, you leave. But all of that is helpful for the next discussion, whether it's six months from now or even a year from now. And at that point, you know, they might be surprised the first time you asked that you already think you're ready for 
an increase in compensation. And, and I actually think in negotiation too, it's, it might not just be salary. It might be for more vacation time. It might be for a bigger office. It might be mm-hmm. for, are you asking about flexible hours? Yeah. Flexible, flexible hours. Hour. You're your own advocate, but companies do want their employees happy. So I think if you also have a range of things, it kind of lets them know they're on borrowed time as are you. Mm-hmm. And that way they can think it through at the next budget, at the next like hiring. That's a really good point, actually. That's a really good point to tell them what your expectations are. Maybe not today, but like for six months or a year from now so that they could prepare themselves for that next conversation. And they have it it in the back of their mind. So the first time it might be a surprise them and they might be like, I just straight up, like we do not have that in Mm -hmm. the budget right now. When I graduated, I started working at WSB. WSB is a huge engineering consulting firm. I worked there and I did civil design work there. And I didn't really, I don't know, it wasn't for me. I didn't enjoy it as much. So then after two and a half years, I changed to construction management. Like I completely changed from design to construction. And I really wanted to experience it and see what it was like. So um, it ended up being something that I really liked doing. But when I found this company that I work at right now, it's a small boutique company. So relative comparing it to the salaries that people are making at bigger companies, it was very low. In my first meeting, you know, uh, I, they asked me like, you know, what did you start with when you graduated? And I told them what I started with. I'm like, I started with 57. And then they're like, okay, like, that's what we can offer you right now. And I was shocked. And I was like, I've been working for at least you know, two years now. And like, I don't want to be making the same amount I was making in two years, but it is a small company. I'm going to be the only project manager on this project. Like the experience I'm going to get here, I would never get at a bigger company. I went through that step too. I was like, okay, what's my lifestyle right now? Do I have a mortgage to pay? What do I have? Can I afford to make this much money, but gain crazy experience in one year? Like crazy experience, kind of experience that you, it's like it was it was a project that was like a once in a lifetime opportunity kind of thing. And then for my one year negotiation, come in and say, listen, look what I look what I did this past year. <laughs> like, you know, and that's exactly what I did. I, I did my math. I was like, you know what? Maybe I, I can live with that salary for a year. I knew it was under the market. But I, I was like, you know what? No, I want this. Like, I want to gain this experience. So I did that for a year. And then in my second negotiation meeting with my boss, he was just like, tell me what, like, tell me your number. And I told him my number and I gave him a high number and he accepted it. Like he accepted my number right off the spot because he's like, the value you added here, I built up my case. Everything about this. I'm like, yes. And I just want to add one other thing when you like gave the number this is so important. I just got caught on this, by the way, recently. Know your number. Know your number. Yeah. Have your range. And know your dream number. I actually think you can get bogged down, as I have, in my bottom. Like, I definitely was clear on my floor. I was like, I yeah. cannot make so less important. than this. But what I wasn't actually prepared for was what, like, a realistic dream number is. It just shows you have a high value and a high worth. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that could happen... It's saying, no, but we can offer you this. It's true. And you're like, and sometimes in your mind, you're like, yeah, I didn't really think I'd get that anyway. Like, Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You you shot that year where I was working on that low salary. I was still really happy. So, and I always share these numbers with people because I think it's, 
nothing to be shy about personally. Talking about money should be a little bit less taboo and more common, I feel like. On that note, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Do you love our podcast art? I'm actually obsessed with it. It was created for us by a very talented local artist right here in Toronto named Claire Fang. And due to popular request, we're making it available to you. Check out our website, loveanddividends.com to get your very own custom Love and Dividends swag. So even as the host of a financially focused podcast, I am constantly confusing these financial terms. What I did for myself was create a handy little cheat sheet to keep everything clear. And now I'm sharing it with you. I hope it will be a helpful tool as you tune in regularly to our show. I don't love the term cheat, but I love the idea of a cheat sheet. Sign up for our mailing list at loveanddividends.com to get a free copy of my beautiful Love and Dividends cheat sheet emailed right to you. I want to ask you a few questions that are the titles of the chapters of your book that I just find so fun. Obviously, people should purchase the materials. Don't want you to give away the special sauce. I also love books and reading and booklets, so I love that you did this. There's a couple that especially piqued my interest. First one that made me laugh was, wait, comma, I need social skills? Question mark. <laughs> so good for engineers. <laughs> one was, uh, how do I manage stress? So important for all of us, especially right now with this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And how do I manage my time effectively? After I started getting those questions and stuff on Instagram, like I actually got to a point where I couldn't answer people one by one anymore. Yeah, so I decided to write my experience in engineering, like when I was an engineering student and like yeah. a, I wouldn't call it a book. It's more of like a guide. It's more like yeah. my experience. And also each chapter, it talks about my experience. And then the second part of each chapter is tips that I've learned that I think would help other people. So like, let's say if we're talking about managing stress, it talks about how, how you know, I went through stress and then what helped me get through it that might help other people. The chapters that you talked about so one of them is wait I need social skills I just this like is... love the title of that one <laughs> so this engineer is not from... known for their social skills you seem very social and I'm definitely like an extrovert so but... you see it's funny that you say that and that's what I always said I was like oh I'm an extrovert I'll be fine but when you come into a professional environment being extroverted doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be good in a professional environment because there's totally. skills. Or for example, being the life of the party in university doesn't mean you'll be good at a networking event. So huh. there's specific social skills that are really important that nobody teaches you that you really need. And some of them and some of the ones that I talk about in the guide are, for example, uh, going to career fairs. When you have a career fair, you have all these companies and all these employers and all these students with like their binders in hand and resumes in hand going up to these booths and trying to, you know, introduce themselves and get more information. So what do you do at that point? What do you do to stand out? What do you do to, you know, benefit you um, in the future? Another thing I talk about is interviews, like how what to do at your first interview. So there's specific social skills that I scenarios that I had to go through without any background knowledge, but I learned so much from it. And I share that in the guide. So that's what that chapter is about. 
And then if you end up being like going on construction sites and things like that, like there's a whole other Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. That you need to learn writing emails, for example, or totally. um, being in meetings with clients, not necessarily your coworkers, but your clients. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of social skills that uh, professional social skills, I would call them. The second one is how do I manage stress? I never tell people that you need to get rid of stress. I feel like stress is always going to be part of your life. What we need to learn is how to manage that stress with our actions. So for example, let's say you go into an exam room and you write your exam and you come out of that exam and you are stressing out. Like you're like, oh my God, how did I do? I got this wrong. Oh, that's never happened to me. Yeah, I've never left. (laughs) Yeah, totally. That didn't happen after my seven hour bar exam. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that to get to each one of my electrical engineering exams, four people would stop me to be like, ma'am, this is the wrong room. I believe you want to be down the hall. And I'd have to like, oh my I am. God. Go on. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. So you're stressed. So you're talking to stressed out Leslie. She's just done an yeah, exam. So you finish your exam and then you constantly are worrying about how you did on that exam, which kind of stops you from studying for your next exam. That's an unhealthy action. That's a useless action. You're, you're going mm. in like a roller coaster of emotions. You can't go back. You can't, you, the exam's over. You need to, stop thinking that way and move on to you know studying for your next exam another example of a useful action is let's say you're stressed for an exam the the exam's the next day and you're like okay i'm super stressed out but i'm gonna make a study schedule i need to just study like solve these five problems before i go to bed and you do that and then you go to sleep that's a useful action like you're dealing with that stress Mm -hmm. with action or you can, you know, turn on, I don't know, go on TikTok and waste your time. So that's a useless action, which is also mm-hmm. going to turn into more stress because you didn't do anything. It, it's important to understand that stress will probably always be a part of your life, but you can always control the amount of stress with your actions. And that is so important. Like, I would always be glad if I came home and I like made my bed, did a load of laundry or like went to the gym. I'd be like, yes, those won't help for next exam. Maybe I'm so traumatized from last one. I can't even look at this right now. But at least like I have clean clothes. Even like I found it really therapeutic sometimes to clean my desk Mm -hmm. and make my desk look cute. So I'd be like, I took all those notes that right now I'm tempted to burn, but I like put them away in a binder because like Mm -hmm. turns out you're taking electromagnetics 201. You're going to take 301. Like this Mm -hmm. is an ongoing degree. Like sometimes I felt really good about those actions with your action, you kind of control the amount of stress that you were feeling and the amount of strain that you were putting on yourself. And then for the next one, it was managing your time effectively. That's such a big one. And it does not mean, and I want to be very clear on this, managing your time effectively does not mean that you're doing something all the time and you're being productive all the time. No, this whole hustle culture that we're living in right now, that's like, oh, you got to wake up at four in the morning and do that. Like, no, that's not managing your time effectively. Managing your time effectively means when you know when to take a break, you know what relaxes you just so that you can recharge and then do that productive thing. That's managing your time effectively. It is not about having stuff booked for yourself back to back to back and having like a to-do list of 20 items for one day. That's going to burn you out and that is not effective at all. So one of the study strategies that I talk about in that guide is the strategy where you study 
for an intense period of time, like you study for 20 minutes or half an hour, and then you take a 15 minute break. And then you study for another half hour, and then you take a 15 minute break. So if you schedule these breaks in your study sessions, and I know there's a lot of studies that have been done on this, it's actually a much more effective way of studying. There'd be like a weird bragging of like, I was at the library for 14 hours studying for that. And I'm like, I saw you. I'd be curious how much you studied. And you're miserable now because you felt like you've done nothing but study. I think having boundaries around your time. Mm -hmm. And there is like a weird bragging right of being busy. Like I did find it. And I often am like. This is hustle culture. This is hustle culture. And I'm like, I wish more and more that that was something people were like embarrassed about. Yeah. Like, cause I, that was always my vibe is I'm like, well, if you were in the library for 14 hours, you didn't manage this appropriately. Yeah. Like no shade for how long it takes you to learn something. As I oh, said, yeah, that's, I, different. that's different. That's different. Yeah, yeah. I'm not ever shading like that for sure. But I do think a lot of people at work and in school were like, I just work constantly. And then they'd be the people like at home, they'd be on the couch being like, I can't do anything because I just worked forever. Mm. And you're like, this just seems like a miserable life. And I've done both. I liked sometimes the feeling of being like, my brain is totally toasted. Mm. It needs to sleep and figure it out. But I got through, especially for engineering, you feel like I got through like 20 problems. I came home and had a meal, even if it's just like I had a meal with my housemates. Like that was nice. I made a healthy meal. And effective time management is understanding what break works for you and implementing that in your schedule. Because if you burn out, that's just not a good thing that's not a good time. Like burning out in school is not good. Burning out in life is not good. It's just, you don't have fun with things. And now it's time for Money Wins. Money Wins is a way you spent, saved, or invested your money that feels like a win. So Mina, do you have a money win for us? I am a big saver. I love my Excel sheets. I love to like put aside how much ever I made and save it. And I love to invest it. Like that's I was going to say, and then I save and I invest. It. Yeah. I don't just save to save. I save to invest within the last like seven years. I've managed to save, you know, a good chunk of money and I invested it um, in a, like a pre-construction building. Like that's in Toronto. A lot of people do that. Like you buy it pre-built. So, you know, and I'm investing my money and that felt so nice. Cause I was like, wow, I, saved this money and I invested it like that on its own is such a good feeling. And if you're the kind of person that, you know, is looking to um, make more money, one way is to get paid for your time. And that's what employees do. And that's what I do. And another is to invest the money that you save and that's make your money work for you. Exactly. How you make your money work for you. So I do real estate. I, I invest in real estate. That's my thing. So I feel like people should find that, investment part yes and 71 percent of women do not invest their money they save it to save it it just sits there for me i'm like please just start please just get out of the 20 please let's grow that 29 percent who are doing it to bigger you know then we can get into the Mm nitty-gritty but i also agree with you if you're investing in something you like you're more motivated like i actually think that that's a great tool is to say well i love real estate so that that probably motivates yeah. you even more to be like, yeah, eh, do I want to yeah. buy this thing? Or like, no, I kind of want more money for the next like venture. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, that is such a good money win. Um, thank you for sharing. I love that you're doing that. 
the other question I do really want to ask you is that given that money is all about compounding gains, what is sort of something you wish you'd done younger? One thing I wish I did when I was younger was to actually understand the amount of numbers needed for something. For example, if you want to invest in, I don't know, a house or a pre-construction, but how much money do you need? Like what is like people always talk about investing, investing, but like, like I know in the stock market, a lot of people talk about, oh, you could even, you know, invest $50 in something, a hundred dollars. Our last episode though, one of them was like clear. She's like, it's 1500. Otherwise you're losing to like buying stuff. Like I agree. I love when someone puts a number and then you're like, a number on it. Yeah. Like what, what is that number? Like everybody says you should invest, but how much, how much of my paycheck should I save in order to be able to invest in something five years from now? Because real estate totally. is you're looking down like five years down the road, right? It's not something that happens tomorrow. You plan for things ahead of time. And then that helps you again with your negotiation. It's like, okay, so if I want to be doing this in five years, I need to be making this much today. I wish I knew a little bit more about the amounts that I needed to save or because I was just like beginning of my career, I would just spend on me too. Vacations and everything, which was great, but I could have probably done the same vacation with less amount of money if I knew. Hundred, you know what I mean. Hundred percent. So I, I, I wish I educated myself a little bit more about that when I was younger. What does wealth mean to you? Wealth to me means happiness and comfort. What makes me comfortable in life? If I feel comfortable and I'm happy about it, I, I feel wealthy. It's important to know that to live a comfortable life, you need to be making this much money. That comfortable mm. life part is very important. Uh, I don't remember where I read this. I think it was an article I read. It was like, after you start making $60,000 or more, your <clears throat> lifestyle, it doesn't make you happier. And I think that happiness depends on comfort. Uh, you're, you know, you have food on the table and I think that, so the first step of wealth is comfort and happiness. I think I'm pretty sure the definition of wealth might change in your twenties and then in your thirties, uh, wealth is a mixture of both money and the way you feel about life. I feel like wealth is not just about money. It's definitely not just a number, but it's just also about how you feel and how like, you know, that happiness inside of you. So it is a mixture of both. And I think when we talk about wealth, we need to talk about both of these items and find that comfort level. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) It's been really fun for me to get to finally meet the iron ring girl. And thank you you for the good work you're doing and, and sharing some of your wisdom with us today. Thank you. Thank you for reaching out. And I think what you're doing is incredible having a podcast around such an important topic and talking to people and shining light on such interesting and important topics. I think it's, um, it's very important and you're doing such an incredible job, Leslie. And it was really, really nice meeting you. Okay, great. Okay, well, on that note, I'll sign up for Love and Dividends. Thank you, Mina. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Love and Dividends podcast. Please subscribe, share, and rate us with five shining stars on iTunes. It really helps us rise in visibility to reach more listeners like you. To find out more, check out our website, loveanddividends.com, our Instagram, at loveanddividends, or email me, leslie at loveanddividends.com. This episode was produced by Holly Dodson. 
Until next time, I'm Leslie Gray, signing off with love and dividends.